You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Well, fuck. I was going to open this week's show riffing on something Michael Steele said on MSNBC last week. He's the former chairman of the Republican Party and he has had it with Trump supporters who refuse to take COVID-19 seriously. I'm exhausted. I'm exasperated. You know, at this point, it, it's like save who you can save um, because there's, there's only so much you can do. There's only so much you can say. Um, the fact that we have to we have to literally beg people to wear a mask to save their own dumb ass from getting sick. I'm sorry. I, I just to me, it is it is beyond the imagination. Yeah, this was going to be another opening rant about masks. I probably ranted enough about masks at the top of the show, but I was going to do it again because lives are at stake. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on Friday. As you may have heard, within hours, within minutes, the same Republican assholes who refused to allow Barack Obama to appoint someone to the Supreme Court after Antonin Scalia died in 2016 because it was the February before a presidential election and the voters needed to be allowed to weigh in, those same Republicans announced that they would fast-track Trump's nominee to replace Ginsburg in late September of a presidential election year. Because rules and norms, including brand new rules pulled right out of Mitch McConnell's ass four short years ago, they're for Democrats, not Republicans. The hypocrisy here, it's just so obvious. It's so glaringly obvious, it's hardly worth the breath to point it out. But I'm going to anyway. When a black Democrat is president, we can't vote on a new Supreme Court justice with nearly a quarter of his term left to go because the voters need to be heard. But when an orange asshole is president, when an orange white supremacist is president, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's body isn't even allowed to get cold before McConnell announces that the Senate will vote on the orange asshole's nominee. And Trump, our troll in chief, announced over the weekend that he would nominate a woman to replace Ginsburg. According to Mark Joseph Stern at Slate, Amy Coney Barrett is the likely nominee. She's a hardcore anti-choice pro-theocracy Christian conservative that Trump appointed to the federal bench just two short years ago. Barrett, if she sits on the Supreme Court, will vote to undo and overturn and just fucking trash everything Ruth Bader Ginsburg stood for. Equality for women, the freedom from gender-based discrimination for all, the right to choose, the right to marry, all gone. And of course, the troll-in-chief would appoint a woman to undo the work this woman did. But this isn't new. Republicans trolling like this? What Trump is doing here? We pretend that Trump is some aberration when he is no aberration. This kind of assholery is straight from the Republican playbook going back decades and the proof of that is sitting right there, right now, on the Supreme Court. Thurgood Marshall was the first African-American to sit on the Supreme Court. A pioneering civil rights attorney, Marshall argued Brown versus the Board of Education before the Supreme Court when he was still a lawyer. And the Supreme Court decided unanimously, after hearing his arguments, that racial segregation of schools was unconstitutional. 
Marshall was appointed to the court by LBJ, a Democrat, in 1967 and retired from the court in 1991 when George H.W. Bush, a Republican, was president. And who did the elder Bush, the gentler, kinder Bush, nominate to replace Thurgood fucking Marshall? Clarence fucking Thomas, a black man who opposed and still opposes everything Marshall stood for. Thomas, among all of his other shitty votes, voted with the majority to gut the Voting Rights Act in 2013, which led to black voters being purged from voting rolls all over the country and voter suppression efforts on a scale not seen since the Jim Crow era that Thurgood Marshall helped end. Thomas's appointment was a massive troll. Thomas was and is an insult to the legacy of Thurgood Marshall in the exact same way that Barrett will be an insult to the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Which kind of brings me back to Michael Steele, former head of the Republican Party. I've actually met him a couple of times. Michael Steele seems like a decent guy and the GOP racked up a bunch of wins under his leadership, which I sometimes think he might regret. But Steele was something of a troll appointment himself, totally qualified to lead the GOP, first African-American elected to statewide office in Maryland, a former Confederate state. But he was selected to lead the GOP, first African-American man to lead the GOP right after Barack Obama was sworn in as our first African-American president. So we elect our first black president. The GOP appoints their first black leader. The GOP at that particular moment decides to make a black guy the public face of a party that has been making blatantly racist appeals to white voters for decades, owning the libs in the process while creating a little plausible deniability for people who don't want to think of themselves as racist, even as they back a race-baiting party doing everything it can to harm and disenfranchise people of color. But that was then, 1967, 1981, 2009. This is now 2020. Attempting to shame the shameless at this moment is a waste of time. The Republicans know they're hypocrites and they do not care. So all we can really do is make noise, donate money, and fight like hell to take the Senate away from Mitch McConnell before he can do even more harm to the country. And when we take the Senate away from Mitch McConnell, like we're going to take the White House away from Donald Trump, when we take it all back, when Dems have the White House, the Senate, and the House— We're going to have to do something Dems have been loath to do. Govern like Republicans. Use every lever at our disposal to ram through a Democratic agenda, which might include adding more justices to the Supreme Court, because there can't be one set of rules for them and another set of rules for us. We aren't sending Democrats to Washington to set a good example for Republicans. We're sending them there to crush Republicans which means Dems are going to have to learn to be ruthless. All right, coming up on today's show, I go deep into subspace with Lena Doon. She is a submissive in a 24-7 DS relationship, and she gives DS relationship advice at Ask a Sub on Instagram. She is so smart and compassionate about dom-sub issues. It was great chatting with her. The first part of our condo is on the micro, and the whole thing is on the magnum that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a 31-year-old bi cis woman living in the Pacific Northwest, and I have a quarantine sex story for you. So my partner and I 
have been interested in exploring non-monogamy and we kind of organically met this other couple uh, through work. We're all healthcare professionals and we started flirting with each other sort of before the pandemic and then during the pandemic uh, over a couple of months and finally um, determined that we were all interested in having a sexual relationship. So we set a date, met up at this resort sort of between our two locations and had a wonderful couple days together. Uh, we were all pretty nervous. This was everybody's first time doing a full like couple swap situation. So we, we started off by each person sort of getting massaged by the other three people, just like everybody getting a chance to adore each other. It was wonderful. Um, and then once we all started, you know, touching each other, we had such a great time. Everybody's communication was spot on. Everybody was clearly very attracted to each other. I personally haven't had much experience uh, being sexual with other women, so this was super exciting. Uh, this other woman had like a totally different body type from my own, and she was really fun to touch, and she gave me some of the best oral I've ever had. Other highlights were, uh, so the, the other guy in the couple, um, he's very interested in shibari style rope bondage. And my partner was interested in being restrained. He'd never been tied up like that before. And this other guy had never uh, restrained a man before. So I just got to snuggle with this other woman while we watched the two of them get tied up or do the tying. Uh, and everybody was clearly very turned on and interested. Uh, and then this other woman and I, once my partner was restrained, we just went over and kind of had our way with him, uh, rubbed it down with a whole bunch of oil and gave him a two-person blowjob, which was a big fantasy of mine. Uh, another highlight was near the end of the second evening, once we were all getting much more comfortable, um, I was having penetrative sex with the other man and my partner was having penetrative sex with the other woman. Uh, we were all kind of next to each other and I look over and it's like really, it's uh, kind of late evening. There's some very warm light from the bedside lamp and my partner just looked so so sexy having sex with this other woman and she was clearly having a wonderful time it was just such a turn on to see him uh through another person's eyes and i'm just so glad it all went well definitely a success we're going to get together um in a couple weeks to watch some of the hump films together we're very excited what a great success story. Thank you for calling in and sharing it. So many highlights, as you said, uh, and a big gamble. A weekend away with a couple you'd never met before to do some things you'd never done before. We typically advise couples who've never swinged or swunged or swanged to take it slow, uh, baby steps to see how it's going to feel. And although you did it on kind of a compressed time schedule, it sounds like you took it slow over the weekend, some massaging and getting to know each other first before the real action, before the bondage and double blowjobs. I'm so glad it went well and was a positive experience for you guys. If you want to share your sex success story or your quarantine success story or both, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064, and we may open next week's show with your success story. Hey, Dan. I'm a 30-something Midwest girl. I have an ex-husband. He's my ex-husband for about eight years now. And uh, it ended great. Like, it was fine. It was we weren't good together. So we've always been friends. But that was 
obviously, Irisville, and he, over the last couple of years, has repeatedly asked me for nudes and wants to pay for them. A lot of money. And I kind of did when I was single at the time. And I mean, whatever, it's nothing he's never seen before. So, and he always pays up and it's great. And I mean, why not? (laughs) But at the same time, I just recently found out that he has been married for the last two years, which I did not know. So I would never, ever say anything to her. Like, that's not my place at all. But should I stop my behavior? Like, should I stop what I'm doing? Because, I mean, everyone needs the money right now, and it's nothing you've never seen before. So I don't see what the big deal is. But my friends are saying that what I'm doing is just, like, feeding into whatever thing he has for me. So I don't know. I just like your advice. I honestly don't see who's being harmed here, but it's not always enough to ask who's being harmed. Sometimes you have to step way back and ask who could be harmed. And I suppose there's some potential harm here, potential harm to his new wife. If his new wife were to find these photos, I can't imagine that she thinks her husband doesn't look at naked ladies on the internet. All husbands and boyfriends look at naked ladies on the internet, except mine. Mine's pretty good about not looking at naked ladies on the internet. But she would not only have to find the photos and find out he's looking at naked ladies on the internet, but for the harm to be done, for the sort of emotional damage to be done, she would have to find out that these are photos of his ex. And that would require her knowing what you look like or your ex-husband being dumb enough to save these photos in a file that's labeled nude photos of my ex wife. And all of that seems unlikely. Considering you didn't even know that he had a wife, I doubt very much that his wife, even if she knows that he has an ex, knows who you are, knows what you look like, has seen the wedding photos or the wedding video. So even if she were to stumble over a couple of these photos, if she snooped on his phone or dug into his computer, just the risk of her learning something other than he looks at other naked ladies sometimes, which she should just assume he does, seems pretty low. So the risk of harm here, I think, to the new wife is low. The issue your friends raised was whether this is harming him, if he has some obsession with you. And are you fueling this obsession by playing along with his, not demands, requests or or offers to pay you for nude photographs? And I suppose that's possible. I'm assuming uh, based on your friend's objections or observations that you divorced him as amicable as the divorce was. Sounds like you initiated it. You wanted out of the marriage. Perhaps he didn't. Maybe you weren't attracted to him anymore sexually or emotionally, and he was still emotionally and sexually wrapped up in you, and that's why he wants to see these photos and maintain this connection. And is that good for him? Well, possibly that may not be good for him. The person to ask about that or draw out about that is him. You should ask him, is this bad for you? Am I doing something terrible when I'm selling you these photographs that I'm happy to sell you? This is kind of fun and weird and off the wall for me and money is nice, particularly now. And I'm happy to have the money and I'm happy to share these photos with you because again, like you said, caller, there's nothing in them that he hasn't already seen. And the transactional commodified element here is sounds like kind of a bit of a turn-on for you. Well, it may be that it's a turn-on for him too. It may be that 
you know, there's some part of him that gets off on having his nose rubbed now, hopefully sometime after the divorce, after the, you know, pain of the divorce had subsided, having his nose rubbed in what he can't have anymore. Maybe he's eroticized your rejection and he beats off looking at your old – looking at your new photos and your old photos, uh, thinking about the men you're with now and being turned on by having an ex-wife out there in the world who's free to do whoever and whatever – she wants and he's not what she wants to do. He may have successfully built that firewall uh, around his desire for you, his attraction to you and that kind of, I guess, degradation or humiliation in having his nose rubbed in these photographs, in what he can't have anymore. And if you sense after drawing him out and having a little bit of conversation about it that he has done that, that he can enjoy – sort of the eroticized rejection or frustration in seeing your photos and not being able to be with you anymore the way he wanted to be with you when you ended the marriage, then I think you can go on doing this. You are putting nothing into the world when you sell these photographs to your ex-husband but a little joy, a little pleasure. And again, if he is not stupid enough to save these photos in a file that he's marked, nude photos of ex-wife that I purchased from her long after our divorce, I don't see how this could wind up hurting his current wife. Hi, John. 26-year-old, bisexual, female from the UK here. I think all I want is you just tell me to break up with this guy. I just want somebody to tell me to break up with him. Like, I don't know why. What's holding me back from breaking up with him? Been together for two years and we have a real problem with communication. He can't talk about his feelings. He's like anxious and just unable to communicate emotionally at all in the way that I need. I've known this for a long time and I've tried to do different things like set different boundaries and set, like make different plans for how we're going to communicate with each other and it just hasn't worked and nothing works and I just need to break up with him. Just tell me to break up with him. Break up with him. You have my permission to break up with your boyfriend who isn't able to communicate to you about his feelings or his emotions, to make a commitment and that frustrates you and causes you pain and that is enough reason to end the relationship. If he can't talk with you about what he's feeling, if he's too anxious to share his feelings with you, well, then perhaps he's not in good enough working order to be in a relationship and he needs to go work on that and work on himself, which he's likelier to do perhaps in the wake of a breakup because he hasn't done it while you've been with him. So you should end it. And the reason you hesitate to end it is probably because you don't want to hurt his feelings. There's something about him that you love and that – makes you wish he was more emotionally available to you and in a better place and healthier and more functional so he could stay in this relationship. But he's not in that place. He's not any of those things. And you can't stay in the relationship. It could also be that you fear being alone. A lot of people stay in relationships that don't satisfy them sometimes for decades. Even relationships, not that just don't satisfy them, but make them miserable for decades because they fear being alone because to be alone is to be a loser, is to not have someone. And as Joan Price said on this show once and I've repeated it a million times because I agree with it and she put it so well, it's better to be alone because you're alone than to be alone because you're with the wrong person. 
So if it's the latter, if it's just the fear of being alone, you need to push through that. You tell yourself that you won't always be alone. But even if you are alone for the rest of your life, you can still build a rich and rewarding life for yourself. We should all do that. We should all build rich and rewarding lives for ourselves, whether we're partnered or not partnered because there will probably be times in our lives, all of our lives, when we are temporarily or permanently not partnered. Every partnered person on the planet is one car accident or runaway bus away from being a single person again. And you don't want to live your life in such a way that if you wind up alone, you're miserable because there will be stages in our lives and all of our lives where we are alone. And we want to be happy in those stages of our lives. We're likelier to attract a new partner if a new partner is something that we want. If we are happy and content and we have a rich and rewarding life that somebody else can join us in. Anyway, that's a long digression. All you asked for was permission, a push, a shove to go and do what you know you need to do and break up with your boyfriend and you have it. You have my permission to break up with him. No, 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 not my permission. I am ordering you to do what you know you need to do and break up with that guy. Hi, Dan. I am a cis recently out as queer woman from the South calling you because – Look, I just want to know the deal with guys and eating pussy. My boyfriend says that he likes eating pussy, but he doesn't get hard when he goes down on me and he doesn't go down on me very often. A, do guys who really love eating pussy not get hard when they eat pussy? And for the love of half your listeners, like, what can we do to taste really irresistible? Lots of guys have sucked my dick. Sometimes a guy will be sucking my dick and his dick will be hard too. He may not even have to touch his dick and his dick will be a rock hard. He just loves sucking dick and it turns him on and blows his dick up. He gets an erection while sucking dick. That's all he needs is a dick in his mouth to be hard as a rock. Other guys suck your dick and they're concentrating on your dick and it's not about their dick and they love sucking dick and they enjoy sucking dick and they enjoy the pleasure it gives. But it's not about – them and their lack of an erection while they're enthusiastically sucking your dick isn't a sign that they're not enjoying it or they're not invested in your pleasure or they're not going to get off to the thought of your dick having been in their mouths later. So the evidence that your boyfriend doesn't enjoy eating pussy isn't in the fact that while he's doing that work, while he's eating your pussy, while he's prioritizing your pleasure, his dick isn't hard necessarily. The evidence that your boyfriend might not enjoy eating your pussy is that it happens infrequently. He doesn't eat your pussy often. If eating your pussy was something that he loved to do for you but also for himself, he would initiate eating your pussy. He would want to be down there, his face in your lap, his face on your twat, chowing down more often than he does. Now, let's game this out for a second. Let's say your boyfriend doesn't really love eating pussy. Not revolted by it, but something he could take or leave. That it's something he does for you. Would you want him to be honest with you? Would you want him to say, eating pussy isn't my favorite thing. In fact, I could go without eating pussy ever. But it's important to me to eat your pussy considering that you suck my dick or maybe that's uh, the most effective way to make you come. Maybe you really love having your pussy eaten. So this is a thing he does for you, for you, not for him. Is that okay? Could you hear that and still enjoy him eating your pussy? 
if there was nothing necessarily in it for him except the satisfaction of providing you with this pleasure that you enjoy, that you deserve, and if you're sucking his dick, you're entitled to. It may be that it's not his favorite thing. It may be that he's lied to you about it because he doesn't want to ruin it for you when he does do it. You need to ask yourself before you force the issue with him whether that's okay, whether you will accept him eating your pussy on those terms. And I think you should. There are some people out there who will suck dick who don't really enjoy sucking dick, but they enjoy everything else that may happen before or after a little bit of gawk sucking or they're just really into the idea of getting their partner off. And this is a way to get you know the partner with the dick off. And that may turn the person on in the abstract, but the dick sucking itself is not a turn on. And so their dick while they're sucking your dick isn't hard or their pussy while they're sucking your dick isn't drooling. You know, we talk about reciprocity and specifically it often comes up when we're talking about opposite sex relationships. We're talking about women who have male partners and blowjobs seem to be – expected and blowjobs are given and he doesn't eat her pussy and that's a problem. And guys should eat their girlfriend's pussies, particularly if their girlfriends are sucking their dicks. And sometimes you have to say to guys, you need to step up. You need to do this. You need to provide this pleasure. You need to reciprocate. And some of those guys who are told they need to reciprocate – Eating pussy isn't their thing, isn't their favorite thing, isn't something – it's something they can do. Maybe they have neutral feelings about it. Maybe they enjoy the pleasure it provides but it's not turning their crank in a very specific way. And if that ruins having your pussy eaten for a lot of women out there, well, I guess we should stop telling guys that they're obligated to reciprocate or they ought to reciprocate or their shitty boyfriends or husbands if they don't reciprocate where oral is concerned. And I don't think we want to do that. I think we want guys to reciprocate, which means there may be times that women out there, you caller, have to accept that your boyfriend's eating your pussy and you're loving it and it feels great and you're telling him what to do and giving him instructions and holding him by the ears like they're a pair of handles uh, and you're driving that cunnilingus session for your own pleasure. And you need to be content with that kind of pussy eating, that reciprocal pussy eating as opposed to enthusiastic or frequent pussy eating. As for making yourself taste irresistible, be in good health, get your checkups, go see your gyno, get your pap smears, all of that. Then have a decent diet. Drink a lot of water, fresh fruit juice, eat vegetables, don't eat too much processed food, don't eat a lot of salty, smoky, processed Meat products, don't drink nothing but coffee and Diet Coke and eat nothing but jack-in-the-box. The fluids we excrete are derived from the fluids and foods we ingest. And if we ingest nothing but garbage, then, you know, our cum won't taste as good as it could. Our pussy juices won't taste as good as they could. Our spit won't taste as good as it could. But your vaginal secretions <laughs> – again, there's not a great name for that like sponges or whatever. Your vaginal secretions are going to taste like pussy. There's nothing that you can eat, guys, to make your cum taste like vanilla pudding or pineapple. And there's nothing women out there, pussy havers out there can eat that's going to make your vaginal secretions taste like, I don't know, creme brulee. So 
be as healthy as possible, have a balanced diet, and you will taste as good as you possibly could. At a certain point, someone enjoying how you taste is really chemical. It's some sort of ephemeral, hard to pin down, hard to define, just chemical fucking connection that can't be faked with pineapple juice. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm female identified 22 year old in the Seattle area. And I was just wondering if you had any suggestions about learning how to have sex and being more comfortable with it. I'm pretty inexperienced just due to a combination of insecurity and circumstance. I've had only one serious long-term relationship and a couple of hookups, but my experience of sex so far is pretty vanilla PIV stuff with cishet men. And honestly, it's been pretty boring. I think I'd be interested in exploring power dynamics with both dick people and vag people. I identify as a sub as far as I know. So how would I go about finding like a hands-on sex expert? Is this a thing where I should hire a sex worker? Is it a fet life thing? I'm kind of uncomfortable with being so upfront about all this with people, just for safety reasons and whatnot but obviously I'm willing to push my barriers in order to learn. Oh, and I know this isn't really the right or safe time to be entering new physically intimate relationships, but yeah, I just thought I'd ask for Rex in advance of our society's impending collapse. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Lena Dune is a bisexual submissive in a 24-7 DS relationship and a proponent of sane and healing BDSM. She goes by Ask a Sub on Instagram where she makes kink-centered memes, gives really great DS relationship advice, and serves as fairy sub-mother to her 40,000 followers. Hey, Lena, how are you doing? Great, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I've wanted to have you on for such a long time. I, I follow you on Instagram. I think you give such terrific advice in this space, in the DS relationship space, and such great BDSM advice. Uh, and so I'm just really excited that you, you had the time for us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, so let's just jump right in. So this 20-year-old woman is interested in DS sex with dick people and veg. <laughs> People, how does she find her first uh, dom partner? How do you do that when you're 20 years old? Yeah, well, first of all, God bless Gen Z, because, you know, as an advice professional, you're always trying to find a way to be inclusive of people's bodies and their pronouns. And then Gen Z comes in and like dick people and badge people. And it's like, <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, that's how you do that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, for her, I think that you know, people are asking me all the time, like, oh, where do I find a responsible dom? Where do I find this? Where do I find that? It's not so much about the location that you find them. Um, and it's more about sort of installing a filter in yourself so that you can be sort of weeding out the right people to be playing with. So that that all stems from her doing her own research on like limits and negotiation and safe words and, and aftercare and then feeling comfortable to sort of interview anybody that she might be playing with about, about those themes. Um, and, and paradoxically, and really she feels comfortable. for a lot of subs mm-hmm. that get hung up on this, it's not just interviewing people about all those things, you know, limits and, you know, negotiations and, and safe words and aftercare. It's making demands as the sub. Yeah. You're going in with expectations mm-hmm. that these conditions of yours will be met. And some people feel like that sort of violates the whole DS emotional erotic dynamic. And it doesn't. No, absolutely not. Especially, I mean, you have to think of your, your submission as this like amazing gift that you're giving whatever partner, because they can't practice dominance without a willing submissive. So, you know, when you're thinking of pairing up with somebody, a lot of subs come in with this sort of scarcity mindset, like, Oh, I'm never going to find another Dom again. 
but rather they should be thinking, hey, I'm supplying this person with an amazing experience to practice what they love. So like, if I'm going to give that away, they should prove to me that they're a safe person to do it with. So yeah, it's just about that confidence of like, I have something special that people want. And one of the things I really love about following you on Instagram and love to see your interactions with your followers is that you're always pointing out the red flags that an inexperienced sub needs to know about when they're negotiating with, you know, potential doms that they're meeting on the internet. And Mm -hmm. it's a trap that so many, you know, wannabe subs or new, newly out subs or newly seeking subs fall into where some shitty fake dom convinces them mm-hmm. that making demands or having expectations or having limits is not okay, is not what a real submissive would do. Uh, and she mm-hmm. needs to know, the caller needs to know that her submission, like you said, is a gift. She gets to s- decide who she's going to give it to, but that person has to earn that gift by proving they're not a shitty dom or a shitty person. And one of the mm-hmm. chief ways someone lets you know they're a shitty, untrustworthy dom is that they tell you you're not allowed to have limits or make demands. Exactly. And and there's also other little cues kind of that, that you can pick up on really quickly. Like if somebody comes into a messaging, you know, DMing on an app and they're immediately like, hey, baby girl, you know, it's, it's your daddy. <laughs> they're immediately like engaging in fantasy play without negotiating it. A lot of subs will think, oh, this is what's supposed to happen. But in fact, that's somebody who's just not very good with boundaries and can't be clear about expressing themselves sexually so they're just trying to like throw you into a role play scenario without first discussing it so that's one of those things that you look out for that you you see a ton but should not be happening <laughs> right and so anybody who's on mm-hmm. you know a, a fat life or a recon uh, which is where a lot of gay men mm-hmm. partners for dom sub play uh, who instructs you to basically approach them on your knees and groveling and begging for their attention They've weeded themselves out of consideration. That's not the way a real dog yeah. behaves. No, they treat you like a person and they talk to you like a person. And then, and then you can choose to be talked to, you know, in a, in a role play dynamic once you've established, hey, there's mutual equality and trust and respect going both ways here. And now we are opting into a power exchange, not a forced power role play scenario. Exactly. That didn't agree to. You got to create that, that trust you know, in, in that you have to make sure that you feel that the person feels that they can trust you as a dom. And also th- that goes mm-hmm. both ways. You know, doms can have limits too and boundaries too, uh, and, and get to, and can have expectations about their own, like emotional or sexual safety also. And once that, mm-hmm. you know, once trust is established, it's within trust. It's almost like trust is this room you play in, but you have to build that room. You have to create that space mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of doms, um, experienced doms, doms worth having will say that their number one red flag and looking for a submissive is somebody who can't talk about their own boundaries, who don't have limits, who don't negotiate, because that also is unsafe because the dom doesn't know what to do if they don't know where to start. So it's like, you know, as a sub, you're flagging that you're a good and responsible partner. If you're like, I won't do this and let's talk about this. And, if, you know, if you've considered yourself sexually you know, you're flagging to that person, hey, like I'm safe and I, I'm in control of myself. So it goes both ways. And where to find them? Where as a sub does she go? Obviously, there's not a 7-Eleven that stocks them. Where do you go if you're <laughs> like newly submissive and you want to explore this stuff with somebody who identifies as a dom as opposed to, you know, broaching the subject with a romantic partner you might have met under vanilla circumstances? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I wish I could send everybody to Dom's R Us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that, uh, you know, FetLife can be okay for, for like events. And it's very location specific what you find on FetLife because sometimes there's just a lot of people on there that don't really understand DS and are just on there to have a boundary crossing experience with somebody that they're interested in. So, um, but I, I really like Field as an app. And um, there's a couple of kinky apps. I know there's like Whipler and um, even Tinder sometimes you can you can find stuff if you're able to say in your bio like you know make a nod towards what you're looking for because I find you know when people are like hey I'm a sub on on a dating app they get flooded with people who probably don't even completely understand what that means but just see sex positivity and like jump on it but um yeah you could be sort of like you know hey if you're into you know rack and SSD hit me up or somebody told me once that they put stingy or thuddy in in their (laughs) bio like and so then if people know what they're talking about, then they can see that and go, oh, okay, and start a conversation. Well, just to make sure everybody out there knows what we're talking about, rack, risk-aware, consensual kink, and SSE, safe, mm-hmm. sane, and consensual. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, mm-hmm. a lot, there's a lot of lingo out there in BDSM land, but there's also a lot of really good information out there. If you uh, encounter a word uh, or, you know, something that you don't understand, if you Google it, you'll probably find your, so find your way to um, a fact sheet or an info sheet that will expl- that'll unpack the mysteries of things like RAC or CBT <laughs> or VA or TT. Yeah. And I really want to second what you said there about a sub needing to be able to unpack their desires, to say what it is that they want. Mm-hmm. Because doms aren't clairvoyant and they're not going to read your mind. And it can be traumatic for, for a dom to stupidly and I think they shouldn't play with people who can't articulate their desires to like go for it and then realize that what they're doing is making the sub unhappy or feel unsafe or traumatized because they were as the dom asked to guess no Mm -hmm. guessing Mm -hmm. in BDSM no because the tops are also at risk for top drop you know we talk about sub drop and and you know as as meaning like feelings of sadness after after sex or sort of like a deflated feeling and, and and tops are at risk for that too so you know the feelings of shame that can be brought on by feeling like you exercised your will over someone that didn't want them like they have to overcome so much to get into that role of dominant that they really need to know that the submissive they're playing with is someone who is in control of their own safe words etc you know just to like safeguard against against their feelings of shame and such they're not invincible just because they're doms <laughs> All right, we have a couple more calls for you. Let's get to them. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis heterosexual woman in my mid-30s, and I live in the Pacific Northwest. My boyfriend and I have been monogamously dating for six years. We don't live together, but spend time together every weekend. We don't have sex as often as I'd like, even less now with COVID concerns. But when we do, it's always been pleasing and satisfying for us both. We've been talking on and off about introducing some more DS-type kinky play into our sex time together, but haven't really taken the leap yet beyond some occasional slapping, spanking, and hair-tugging. He's expressed to me that he's turned on by assertive women and has an interest in being submissive to me during some play sessions. Between the two of us, I tend to be the more submissive, deferential person in normal life, and I was initially unsure that I could muster the dominant power to fully take charge in the bedroom. But as I've taken more time to consider it, I'm really interested in giving this a try to unlock a more assertive side of myself and get better at expressing my needs and desires. I think it could even help my confidence in other areas of my life. My questions surround how to start this off on the right foot. 
I, of course, plan to have more open talks with him about what we're interested in trying, what our soft and hard limits are, and how to stay safe. I've purchased some outfits, toys, and restraint tools that make me feel attractive and powerful, but I have yet to unleash them on him. I recently told him that I'm wondering if we'll run into power struggles, as in, if we're both kind of switches, how do we decide who's going to be in control of the play when things start to get hot and heavy? I suppose having an explicit discussion before each session could solve this question, but it sounds like a spontaneity and mood killer. His answer was that maybe we should flip a coin to see who will be in charge next time. I've also been trying to brainstorm what I, as the dom, should ask my submissive to do for me. What should I request from him that isn't just random and arbitrary tasks, but things that please us both? When I think of the things that I've usually wanted from sex, like erotic massage or being desired in a ravishment-like scenario, I think these aren't going to be interesting for him as he's looking to be more of a groveling servant. And, like, you can't command your sub to dominate you because then it's all upside down, like you're bottoming from the top. Uh, My third question is uh, I've read a bit about Subs who are bratty and intentionally misbehave against the commands of their dominant because it's really the punishment that follows that they're seeking. Having a petulant brat who's always defying me and I have to spend the whole time punishing doesn't sound as appealing for me. My mind keeps going back to what I've read about training a pet dog. You don't want to reward the bad behavior. But what if all they want is the punishment? How does the dom retain dominance when the sub is bratty? Am I thinking about this all wrong, Dan? I know this is going to take some practice for us both, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on beginning our DS play on the right track so we have a good chance at exploring it successfully and both having a great time. Before we get to the specifics of this question, Lena, can we talk about the sub-surplus? The sub-surplus, also known as the dom shortage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> meaning, like, uh, you know, there's there, there there's a belief in the in the in the DS community that there are more subs than doms, um, and I, I I get it, but I'm also like a strong proponent of there's a lid to every pot. You know, you can find what you're looking for. It just takes a while. It's just like vanilla vanilla land where it takes a while to find the perfect partner. It's the same thing in DS. And in, in DS land, particularly in gay DSM land, there's a lot of doms who are not quite frustrated subs, but they have a sub's imagination because they enjoy subbing, but they you know, get more play doming or they're more comfortable doming even if they have submissive fantasies. So if you're a sub uh, or you have submissive desires, that doesn't mean you can't be a dom and be a very good one because mm-hmm. most doms – either have subbed or, you know, in I think a significant percentage of cases really are subs that that would be their preferred role. But for whatever Mm -hmm. reason, you know, the the reality of it doesn't work for them or they find more success doming than subbing, they're doming. So just, uh, I would Mm -hmm. say to the caller, don't assume because you have, you know, more submissive sort of posture in real life or submissive fantasies that you can't nail this. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, whatever drives it, the the number one feature of a good dom is empathy and being able to understand the experience of the other person in the scene, whether that comes from, you know, just good communication or or your own fantasies, like being able to understand what it feels like in the other role is actually a help, not a hurt to what to what she's trying to do. And what they're trying to do is introduce DS play into an established relationship. What's your advice there? 
Yeah. So I think that like part of what's going on for her is that she feels like she's entered this world of BDSM and there's so much information coming at her, which like, yes, like I feel like there's a lot of information coming at me and I've sort of, you know, been doing this a while, but, um, and, and so she's really concerned about the rules and the ins and outs and what's allowed and what's normal. And the answer is that BDSM is whatever you want it to be on a given day with the person that you're consensually practicing it with. So like being overly concerned about, Oh, are we implementing it in the right way? It's like, it's right. If it feels right to you and you're both having fun. So like, her concern about, um, oh, but like, I can't top him from the bottom. Absolutely, you can. It's called power bottom, which, you know, also has many other meanings. But like, you can, <laughs> from the bottom, have him be your service top and say, hey, you know, thank me, do this, whatever. And um, which people do all the time. And so, yeah, essentially, I think she just needs to take away the fear because there's no like panel of BDSM judges watching what they're doing, letting them know whether it's okay or not. You know? <laughs> um, I really do want to flag something she said that I thought was not going to serve her well and could get her and her partner into a dangerous spot. She worries that talking before a scene is going to kill spontaneity and is a mood killer. Mm-hmm. And it is a requirement. It is absolutely positively. I think the better you know someone, the longer you've done BDSM play with them, the more you can improvise or vamp or just, you know, you've already done the negotiations and you know what works mm-hmm. and what they want and what works for you and what you want. And you can, you know, play without as much pre-discussion. But at the start, even if you've been in a relationship for a while and you're introducing this, you have to talk it through. You have to script it. Yeah, you must. I mean, um, and, and it's funny because people that are like, oh, my God, it's going to ruin the sex. Have you never had someone explain directly to you all the things that you want to have happen to you that they're about to do? <laughs> <laughs> the best thing in the world. So, like, if she were just to be like, so in the next, you know, 45 minutes, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then if she did them, like, that's fantastic. That That is in no way ruining anything. That's like kind of a bonus. <laughs> and a, a tip a dom gave me once about, you, you know, if, if you use a dom want to say, I want to do this and it's going to feel deflating, you know, for the dom mm-hmm. or in the sub size, you will be deflated. If they just say, nope, I don't want to do that. Uh, one strategy is to offer the sub two choices, two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have to mm-hmm. pick and they have to, yeah. pick, you know, theoretically one, and maybe one's one, you know, the sub likes and one's one that you want to try or challenge them to, but you empower the sub to pick, you know, the quote unquote horrible sexy thing that's about to happen to them. And then the sub can guide, but the Dom can still be, you know, feel or appear to be in charge of where it's going. Yeah. And, and that, that's great. Cause like that gives the dominant, like this ability to still control the flow, but then at the same time to empower the sub to speak up and make decisions for themselves so that they know that they're going in a direction that everyone's happy with. She, she had so um, many questions that I want to make sure we, we, we get on. Like she wants know. to know what, as a dom, she can ask her sub to do for her. And mm-hmm. you know, within the, you know, on the list of pre-agreed things, anything like she seems to think that as a dom, she can't ask for a massage why not? Yeah, that, that's that's what I was thinking. It's like, well, I mean, you know, they don't live together. He arrives at her place, presumably, like, make me a drink, take off my shoes, kneel in front of me. And then everything that happens, you know, over the course of the night, just try practicing like a shade of that kind of high protocol where nothing happens that she doesn't say happens, like stand up, sit down, you know, and that, that kind of stuff is can be a good baseline for a dom to build on for like, you know, more... It, it creative and interesting things but just at the like base level just nothing happens that she doesn't say 
should happen. How do you know, as someone who practices 24-7 DS, you're in a dom-sub relationship, um, mm-hmm. and that dynamic is always uh, in play. How do you know if you're interested or attracted to BDSM? Um, I, I don't want to make a hierarchy here. I don't want to say whether you're cut out for 24-7, you know, as if that's the mm-hmm. varsity level. Um, but how do you know whether which is going to suit you? You know, totally egalitarian relationship equals and then you play and you go into a sort of a DS headspace or DS roles or 24-7. How did you figure that out for yourself? Yeah, um, for me, 24-7 is a lot less about like living a constant fantasy where I'm like on a leash in the grocery store. <laughs> and it's a lot more about for me having continuous structure available. Um, so like I've been in, in vanilla relationships where um, the expectations are shifting all the time and nothing is very explicitly delineated in the way that I have been practiced in my 24-7 dynamic where we just have rules that are in play all the time. Like, you know, and it's, it's not just rules like, oh, who does the dishes, who makes the meals. It, it's stuff like, you know, we can't raise our voices at each other if we're, if we're in, a, in a disagreement or, you know, things like that. So like having that sort of low hum of structure as a foundation to our dynamic just makes me feel safe. And so I'd, I'd, I would encourage people if they're thinking about 24-7 to not think about it like, okay, I'm, I'm submissive all the time. I don't have a voice. It's more like from the position of a submissive perspective, I'm collaborating with my dominant to make a relationship that works for both of us, like using the structures that BDSM gives us. And you said hum or, or thrum there. And, and I think that's important mm-hmm. to emphasize. A lot of 24-7 DS relationships, if you were just to casually observe, if you, you know, had dinner with people in a DS relationship or you went to the house or you saw them in the supermarket and they weren't on a leash, uh, much to the <laughs> relief of the people who work in the supermarket, um, <laughs> it would be almost imperceptible. You'd have, like, it's often yeah. like when people talk about 24-7 DS who don't do it, they think it's like leashes and chains and whips and, you know, degrading talk constantly. And it's more of this kind of subtle, like, hum and something that mm-hmm. can escalate or the dom can escalate when they choose to at a time when they've already mm-hmm. pre-agreed that would be, you know, those times when the dom wants to do that. They understand what would work this sub when it escalates. But, you know, sometimes it's very pronounced during play or scene or sex. And sometimes it's so subtle as to be unnoticeable to the muggles. Yeah, exactly. It's just it um, just gives you this feeling of containment and safety, knowing that those rules are there and also that you're in a certain way that your safe words are always in play. Like if something, you know, in day-to-day life is, is activating you or reminding you of something, or you want to, you know, slow down or anything at any time, just knowing that you, that your boundaries will be honored and respected in the language of BDSM is, is just really reassuring for any of us who've been in like chaotic vanilla relationships where, you know, boundaries weren't as respected. There's so much this call, so many issues this caller raised, and I want to get to one more question, but just right. really quickly, bratty subs. Bra- bratty subs is sort of a, yes. a genre of subs. Can you explain what a bratty sub is and uh, whether you identify as a bratty sub and how do doms roll with bratty subs? Yeah, so bratty subs, I think, are a lot of people's first introduction to BDSM, and, and that's how I began on my submission journey, um, where I understood that, okay, I want to be spanked, so I must misbehave to get punished. Um, so over time I've deconstructed that for myself because for me, the brattiness sort of brought in this feeling of conflict that was really kind of, um, unsettling for me where I felt like to, to get what I wanted sexually, I would have to be at odds with the person topping me. That totally works for a lot of people and they love it. But then for other people, brattiness can be a hard limit. So 
for me, I practice more of like a service submission where I'm I'm good and then I get rewarded with punishment. So like I like to be spanked. So it's like you did something good. Here's a spanking. So which would pick like the lock for the caller. She's worried that if she dom, you know, if he's a bratty sub and, you know, being bratty is how he gets punished, that that's just going to incentivize brattiness. It doesn't sound like she's into brattiness. So rather than punishment for bad behavior, she could adopt your model, which is punishment for good behavior. Exactly. Or like, you know, for bad behavior, you give a really frustrating punishment that's not fun, like writing lines or getting spanked very lightly for a long time. (laughs) Things that are very frustrating and not satisfying for the sub, like like an impact session would be. Hi, Dan. I'm a lady in her 50s. I was super into S&M back about 13 years ago, Um, like really extreme pain, needle, blood stuff like that. Um, I am not anymore. I have a chronic pain condition now, so it's not something I'm super into. Um, And it's been quite a while I haven't been into it. Um, I'm dating a guy now. He's he's kinky, but we don't talk about it because he's got a lot of shame about sex, and I'm not sure why. I think it has to do with his upbringing. He was a Jehovah's Witness, and I know there's some uh, guilt and shame around sex, but he doesn't want to talk about it, which is fine um but this is upsetting i have a brand um that he when he first saw it and i i kind of told him a little bit about what it was and he got squeamish and then he kind of shut it down and he chose to believe that i was in an abusive relationship and it was something that was perpetuated on me um that was kind of true it was an abusive relationship that i ended up getting out of and it was very traumatic for me um, the brand, however, I did myself, and I did not tell him that. Um, this weekend, I had some shorts on, and you could see it, and he just out of nowhere goes, every time I see that, it's traumatizing to me. And it made me really upset because I felt like he was making my trauma about him because that, that mark is a constant reminder to me about a relationship that I had to go into therapy for about a year for PTSD for, which I told him about. Anyway, we got in a little argument about it. I'm not really sure what to do about it now. Um, And I guess my question is for people like that are, I guess they were kinky at one point and then you're not anymore. What's a good way to explain some of this stuff that is really actually kind of horrifying to people that are, are fairly vanilla and just into like, little kinky things like tying people up and then they they just are horrified and disgusted with you and i'm not really it makes me very sad all right so this is someone who's not into be not practicing bdsm anymore has a vanilla partner and he's judging and shaming her how does she deal with that what should she say to him besides fuck off (laughs) i mean yeah i mean that's that's the thing there's a lot to unpack here but i think it's really important to start with that bdsm is not the same as abuse. Like abuse can happen in BDSM relationships, which sounds like happened to her, but it it, it does not, they're not the same as each other. So that's like when people are afraid of the BDSM world, they think, oh, well, it's, you know, abusive. And in fact, it's it's the opposite of abuse. So um, that's one thing for her. Um, And then the other thing that that really um, struck me about this call was that she, you know, she mentions how he says that he's traumatized by looking at her body. And and maybe he is, but there's also, we kind of have a, a sort of a looseness with the word trauma these days. Like, 
being uncomfortable and being traumatized are, are different things. So, you know, if indeed he is triggered into a PTSD type reaction by looking at her body, that's sort of a basic incompatibility there. Yeah. But if he's un- if he's uncomfortable, maybe there's a way that she can give him the information he needs to get more comfortable with it. Well, all the information he really needs is uh, I practiced BDSM before I experienced chronic pain and I, I don't anymore. And this is something that upsets me, this mark on my body, because the person who put it there turned out to be an asshole. And mm-hmm. you getting performatively upset about it upsets me and stop it. Mm-hmm. And you just have to like mm-hmm. process this fact about me. I was in this relationship. I used to do these things. I don't anymore. Now I'm in a relationship with you. If you can't shut up about this, I'm not going to be able to be in a relationship with you. I really feel like she exactly. needs to throw down with him. She does. And it's, it's, it's very infantilizing on his part to like assume that she, you know, may not have been in control of her own choices. And that's just, I, that just bothers me no matter what it is when people are like, Oh, you know, you've been traumatized. It's like, well, she can say what was traumatic for her and what was her choice and, and, and he can roll with it or, or not. <laughs> so I think this, yeah, this is definitely a sort of a deal breaker. If he can't look at her, I mean, mm-hmm. what's she supposed to do with that? Okay. Before I let you go, I want to ask well, what she can do with that is dump him. Is, is my yeah. opinion. <laughs> um, or thre- at least like- threaten him with dumping him. If he mm-hmm. doesn't knock this shit the fuck off. Mm hmm. Uh, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about the, the concept of sane and healing BDSM. Yeah. So when you when you use that phrase to describe your work or, or to talk about BDSM as potentially sane and healing, a lot of people who aren't into BDSM don't get that. It doesn't mean that you just like throw BDSM at someone who needs, you know, like BDSM would benefit anybody. But for mm-hmm. practitioners of BDSM, it is often healing uh, emotionally and psychologically. Can you explain that briefly for people who aren't familiar with that concept? Yeah. I mean, I think that that those words to me sort of uh, blossomed out of people's misunderstanding of BDSM as coming from 50 shades of gray or like just all of the trash garbage media representations of what we do, um, which, you know, it's portrayed as like, it's, it's forcing someone into doing something that they might not really even like. And, and to me, sane and healing means, you know, approaching it slowly and thoughtfully, you know, like real people would actually approach sex, not the way that things happen in the movies. So like when when a lot of subs, you know, especially, you know, and a lot of my audience is you know, people who are assigned female at birth and those people come to BDSM having already had a lot of um, experiences of feeling dominated in society in ways that they didn't consent to, you know, and, and feeling like maybe unsafe in their bodies, or maybe they've even had sexual assault experiences, which so many of us have. So when you introduce BDSM into that sort of cocktail of emotions, you're able to recontextualize those feelings and experience a little bit of danger, but safely. So, so it, it, it can kind of build into this foundation where you feel more in control, not just of like your own sexuality, your own desires, but also your past mm-hmm. in a way. So th- that's where the healing comes in, I think. To experience safe d- d- danger safely, like th- the adrenaline mm-hmm. the risk gets our blood flowing. But the difference I think with BDSM is kind of the difference between being thrown off a cliff by somebody who didn't ask you or bungee jumping because that's something you wanted to experience. And if you've yeah. you ever seen videos of people bungee jumping, there's this giddiness and joy in that mm-hmm. safe, you know, crazy risk, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's often the case in BDSM, which is something people don't understand who don't 
have never witnessed it or practiced it, that there's a lot of joy and giddiness in BDSM mm-hmm. because of the controlled risk-taking. Absolutely. Like all, most of the subspace in myself and other people that I've ever seen is just like wild giggling. Like people are <laughs> so thrilled to like, and, and it's, it's really interesting to sort of rev up the various, you know, adrenaline and, and oxytocin and everything in your body, you know, con, you know, thoughtfully and, and curate that kind of mental experience. That's why it's so spiritual for a lot of people because you're accessing like this sort of higher consciousness of what your body's capable of, but you're doing it on your own terms and you can stop at any time. So yeah, it's uh, it's, it's the bungee jumping of sex. <laughs> Lena Dunn, buy sub in a 24 seven DS relationship. Check out her educational Instagram account at ask a sub. Um, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It was really a thrill to finally get to, to, to speak with you and I hope you'll come back. Thank you, Dan. Hey Dan, straight female on the East coast calling So I've been in a long distance relationship cross country with a man who's about 10 years older than me for the last two years on and off again. um, We argue and fight, but we also love each other so deeply. And um, it's by far the best sex of my life. Just absolutely mind blowing when it happens. Again, we live on opposite sides of the country. So we were quarantined together for a few months and um it was really difficult because we weren't planning on doing it he was just visiting and so we're trying to figure out how to live closer to one another and it's at the point now where i'm not sure that that's a good idea i'm right at the age where i need to decide if i want to have kids he's told me that he would love to have kids with me he already has a 20 something year old so it's not something that he was planning on doing before he met me. So a few things about me. So I work a nine to five job. I also have a business of my own. I save, I'm getting ready to buy a house on my own. I'm also somebody who is always planning for the future as far as I try to eat really healthy. I exercise all the time. So I'm considered fit. So he is what's medically referred to as morbidly obese, He's recently lost a lot of weight, but he's still very unhealthy. He doesn't think about the future. He doesn't have savings. He's an artist and lives very much by the day. I'm not sure if I'll ever meet someone that I love as much as him, but I also don't know that I can let go of wanting a partner who has the same core values as me as far as planning for the future. I'm wondering how I reconcile the two. How can I move on with someone else when I have this wonderful thing with him? I feel like I'm giving up on him, but at the same time, if we stay together, I'm not sure that I can stop pressuring him to want him to be something that he's he's not. I would love for you to tell me to just live for today. That That's what his advice is to me. But there's just a part of me that, that can't let go. You say this thing you have with him is wonderful, but it sure doesn't sound wonderful to me. You've only been seeing him for two years. You describe it as an on-again, off-again relationship. So that's been sort of high conflict and high drama over the last two years and you don't live together. You don't live in the same city. And the eight weeks that you spent living together, the two months that you spent together, you describe as 
really difficult. I know the circumstances were stressful for everyone. The beginning of the pandemic, you guys quarantined together. It wasn't a plan. It was an accident. But that just those eight weeks when you were forced to be together, it was difficult. You guys, I assume that means argued and fought a lot over those eight weeks. To me, that's a sign that this relationship has lasted as long as it has and that you've been able to take what pleasure or joy you've been able to take from it, not despite it being long distance, but because it was long distance. Because he doesn't live where you live. He doesn't live with you. He doesn't live in your house on your dime. So I think you're doing that thing that sometimes people in long distance relationships do where they regard the LDR as the one problem in the relationship when in certain circumstances, in certain cases, and certainly sounds like in this case, the LDR thing is not what threatened the relationship or not a problem in the relationship but what made the relationship a success because you didn't have to put up with him and his shit all the time. And the one time, the two months you had to put up with his shit day in, day out for eight weeks, it was awful. I'm rounding that really difficult up to it was awful because I suspect that you're minimizing how bad it was. So I'm not going to tell you to live for today and partner with a guy who's 10 years older than you as adult children who would probably very much like to make a baby with you, move in with you, even marry you because he needs someone who's more responsible than he is to take care of him. Doesn't sound like you want to sign up for that. Doesn't sound like you want to be the responsible one at home making sure that the checking account is balanced, making sure that the bills are paid and the mortgage is paid and that you guys are putting money away for the future while he rattles around your house making whatever art it is that he makes. Some people want to be that person in the relationship. Some people enjoy, you know, they say the cliche is opposites attract and this is a kind of opposite that in some cases the more organized plan for the future person enjoys being that person, you know, in that other person's life, being the responsible one, the one who keeps it all together. You clearly don't want to be that for him, which is why the issue that you're hung up on is partnering with him and then getting him to change and be more like you in that way. He's 10 years older than you are and he has never been organized. He's never been responsible with money. He's not going to start being those things. He might want you to be and do those things for him, but you don't want to be and do those things for him. You want a partner who can be and do those things on his own, who's already being and doing those things, who's responsible, plans for the future, sets money aside, can buy a house with you. That's who you want to make a kid with if you want to make a kid with anyone. Not with this guy. Not with this guy that you argue with and you fight. Not with this guy that you've only been seeing for 24 months and then on and off. Not with this guy that over the eight weeks you actually spent living together under the same roof. It was – and again, I suspect you're minimizing. It was a shit show. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you to live for today and spend the rest of your life with this guy. I think you should end this relationship, maybe have one last weekend so you can enjoy some more of that great sex and then tell yourself that there are other guys out there 
who are responsible, who have jobs, who can plan for the future, that you can have a lower conflict relationship with, and who are also good sex. Hi, Dan. 29-year-old female, uh, heteroflexible from uh, the West Coast in Canada. Uh, So I was with my husband for five and a half years, married for two, and two to three years into our relationship, our sex life started dying. Listening to your podcast, I thought we could work around it by becoming open. So we did, and it was slow. I dated women first, then the occasional guy, then we had threesomes. Eventually, it was the only way we had sex. Then we moved to more ethical non-monogamy and eventually polyamory. At some point, I decided to try to date a sugar daddy um, because we were having financial hardship and we owned a business together. I met a really great guy in his 50s who was cheating on his wife to stay married and stay sane. We fell in love very quickly and continued to see each other happily for a year and a half now. Uh, We have amazing sexual chemistry. So fast forward to COVID, my husband had a breakdown and he was falling in love with another woman. We went to counseling, um, but unfortunately it didn't work out and he left me in July saying he doesn't want a poly or even an open relationship and that we're not sexually compatible. So I have been incredibly devastated, um, but I'm following your advice of eating ice cream, seeing friends and going for bike rides. My other partner has been incredibly supportive and at the same time, very insecure and almost emotionally abusive. He left his wife in May 2020 and now he wants to be primary partners. I'm not totally opposed, but being super heartbroken, I have also been distant. And I said to him, give me six months. Let's date. Let's have fun and we can get there slowly. He doesn't like this and gets super insecure. And when he gets insecure, he gets into fight and gets emotionally abusive. We've almost broken up four times in the last two months and we've started counseling and it's been really challenging. So here are my three questions. Number one, do you have any advice for someone who has lost their primary partner and is trying to maintain a secondary relationship? Question two, Do you have any good examples of primary partners with a 20-year age difference? Um, I'm really struggling to see us together in the long term. And number three, often people say you can't change someone. So my secondary partner is being emotionally unstable and very mean. And should I just believe him for who he is and that he won't change? Or is it possible that he could get better with more time and become more secure and less mean. Talk about minimizing. You minimized at the start of your call and then kind of self-corrected. And I wonder if you're conscious of that. You described your secondary partner, the guy that you had this sugar daddy relationship with that you've known for a year and a half at the start is almost emotionally abusive when he couldn't get his way. And then a few moments later, you described him as emotionally abusive without the qualifier, without the almost. So he is emotionally abusive. He is throwing tantrums. He is pitching fits. He wants what he wants. He wants it the way he wants it and he wants it and that's you now and on his terms. And when you explain to him that you were recently divorced, recently left by your husband, this was incredibly traumatic. It wasn't what you wanted. You didn't want to end your marriage and you need time to heal and grieve. 
His reaction isn't, oh, of course, I get it. Of course you need time. I'll back off. His reaction isn't to prove to you, to do what it would prove to you that he might be someone who could be your primary partner. No, his reaction is to pitch a fucking fit, get mean, get emotionally abusive and then paint himself as somehow the victim here because he's so insecure. He can't help it and you should therefore sympathize and it's on you to address his insecurities. And then maybe if you could repair him in this way, maybe if you could get him to a place where he felt less insecure in the relationship, maybe then he wouldn't be so mean to you. Can you see what's going on here? Can you see how he's manipulating you? Can you see how he has disqualified himself? Not just from primary partner candidate, but I also think from secondary partner candidate. You should end this relationship with the mean guy who's 20 years older than you are. And now you know, on to your three questions, advice for someone who lost their primary partner and wants to maintain their secondary relationship. Well, you know, someone who's the secondary may think that they graduate to primary if the primary fucks off or dies or leaves the person that they have been being the secondary partner to. If that's not possible, if you don't see your secondary partner as a potential primary partner and those are really different roles in a poly person's life, you just need to make that clear to your secondary partner that you will one day again perhaps have a primary but it won't be them. Not an easy thing. For an insecure person to hear. Not an easy thing for someone who regarded secondary partner as sort of the vice presidency. And if something happens to the president, the primary partner, they ascend to the presidency. Not the case here. Sometimes the case, but not the case for you because you didn't see him as primary potential. And again, he has disqualified himself, I think, from primary potential consideration by dint of his behavior, his emotionally abusive behavior in the wake of this trauma that you have suffered, that he is making all about him. And you ask if you know it can work out if there's a 20-year age difference. Definitely. I've known people in relationships with significant age differences, sometimes multi-decade age differences, and it can work out. But it only works out if the people in that relationship with the 20-year age difference both regard the age difference as a non-issue. It's clearly an issue for you. It's something that you've thought about. It's something that you're not comfortable with and therefore a relationship with someone with a 20-year age gap as your primary relationship isn't for you. It's not that they can't work out, but they're certainly not going to work out for someone that isn't comfortable in a relationship with a significant age gap. Another reason for you to end this relationship. As for the issue of whether people can change, uh, you know, I don't want to be one of those people who say that people can't change. But the sort of person who pitches a fit, the sort of person who has tantrums, isn't going to change if those tantrums and fits work. If they can manipulate people successfully with their anger and their rage, they're never going to stop. I wonder over the last year and a half as you got to know this guy and fell in love with this guy in the conditional way that you did because you understood that this was a love, not the love of your life and it was a secondary relationship, not your primary relationship. I'm wondering what his marriage was really like, what you learned about his marriage and whether he you know, had a sexless relationship with his wife and whether he emotionally abused his wife in the same way that he's emotionally abusing 
you. Perhaps you need to think back over stories he told you about his relationship with his wife and I'm sure you've heard a lot of them and try to see them from her side. Try to see them through the lens of your own experiences with him recently and some of those stories in which he was the victim, perhaps he was the perp, perhaps he was in the wrong. And seeing those stories now, the stories he told you about his interactions with his wife, maybe through the lens of your experience with him, your recent experience with him, with the angry, uh, manipulative, emotionally abusive side of him or, or part of him or, or the emotionally abusive person you now know him to be, that will cast the stories that he told you about his relationship with his wife in a very different light and you will see a pattern. And if you see a pattern, that's another reason to run from this man, to end this relationship as if you needed another reason and you don't. All right. Before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. The Melinda tweets to the caller in episode 725 who got dumped and then undumped but is still insecure. For your own sake, don't date right now. Check out psychologytoday.com and find a therapist in your area. Therapy first, you first, dating second. Good luck. That's a good point. The Melinda and psychologytoday.com is a great resource. But if you're open, poly, kinky, or queer, or all the above, you might feel more comfortable outing yourself to a therapist you found via the American Association of Sexuality, Counselors, and Therapists. They're at ASEC, that's A-A-S-E-C-T dot org. The Normalizing Non-Monogamy podcast tweets, catching up on the Magnum, Savage Lovecast, and got a good laugh slash cry when Dan said, if you don't have access to a glory hole, it's not that hard to make one, and who hasn't been tempted to punch a hole in a wall recently? Yeah, who hasn't been tempted to punch a hole in the wall recently? And I said that before this weekend's terrible news, so I can only imagine how many brand new glory holes were created over the last few days. And finally, Farmer's Wife tweets, Regardless of what at fake Dan Savage says, Iowa is not the highest COVID-19 area in the world. Yes, our horrible governor, hashtag COVID Kim, has no idea what she's doing or how to lead, but we are not the worst in the world. We're bad, just not that bad. Thank you, Farmer's Wife. The New York Times reported on August 31st that Iowa had one of the worst COVID outbreaks in the world. One of the worst is not, of course, the worst. It's a very important distinction and I stand corrected. Forgive me, Farmer's Wife. And again, thank you. But I do want to note that at the time of that particular report, the last week in August, Iowa had the worst outbreak per capita of any state in the country. Iowa no longer tops the list of states with the worst COVID outbreaks in the U.S., Top prize currently goes to North Dakota, followed by South Dakota, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, Utah, Arkansas, then Iowa, now coming in seventh, followed by Missouri and Tennessee with Nebraska rounding out the list of the 10 states with the worst COVID-19 cases per capita in the U.S. Can you guess what else all those states have in common? All right. If you guess they're all states Donald Trump won in 2016, you would be Correct. Thanks to everyone who tweeted about our show last week. It helps get the word out about the podcast and we appreciate it. And if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan, this comment is in regards to your last show, number 725, and it has to do with you and your husband's last desires after you pass away. You should both each have a will and you can say exactly what you want for your final resting remains 
at that time. And secondly, you could always go to a funeral home and plan it way in advance. And it's usually cheaper that way. You guys love each other. You should respect what each other wants anyway. Hi, this is a response call to the woman who was babysitting her neighbor's daughter. And then the child started touching herself. I work with kids. I'm a therapy, I'm a pediatric therapist. And I'll often tell kids that uh, it's appropriate to, that's a, something that's private and something that they should do in their own bathroom or their own bedroom so that they know that there is a concrete place that is safe for them to do that. But it's something private. It's something that they should do by themselves, just another way of framing it positively for the child um, so that we're not creating shame. Hey, Dan, I just wanted to call with a comment on episode 725 for the guy who is 29, wants to start dating, and is concerned about his lack of experience. I was that guy when I was 29. I came out to my family and I wanted to start dating, kind of felt like time was flying by and what am I doing? But I was worried about my own lack of experience. And I just want to echo your advice to don't waste time on anybody who acts like it's weird or makes you feel bad or and ghosting on you probably the best thing. Somebody who is getting good working order, makes you feel safe, could even laugh about it a little bit with you. Um, I met a guy like that who was very sweet, very caring, and we just had a blast. It's just really funny to think of um, of the assumptions you made about um, being with somebody when you hadn't before and when you're that age. It's um, it, it makes me smile. And just a little postscript to that is I'm 53 now. It's been 24 years, and that first guy is my husband. So get out there, see what happens. And we're going to leave it there. Got a problem you want my help with or a comment on this week's show you got to get off your chest? There are two ways to send us your questions and comments. You can call and leave a message at 206-302-2064, or you can record your question using the Voice Memo app on your phone and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You have three more chances to watch my 15th annual Hump Film Festival online, one being an open-captioned viewing this Saturday. Go to humpfilmfest.com and get your tickets now. And speaking of now, now is a great time to get to work on your film for next year's Hump. Submissions are due December 4th, and along with big cash prizes, Hump will share a portion of all ticket sales with filmmakers who make it into the festival. So go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to find out more about making and submitting a film for next year's Speaking of films, the producers of Hump are launching a totally terrifying new short film festival this October, Slay Film Fest. Starts on October 15th and runs through Halloween with two volumes of over 30 short horror films from all over the world. Go to slayfilmfest.com to get tickets and watch the trailer. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Lena Dune on Twitter at AskASub. You can also find her on Instagram at AskASub. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech heavy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.